Let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter number 12 this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 12. If you don't know where that is, it's right after First Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter number 12 this morning. While you find your way there, I want to give a quick endorsement to our uh, New Movers ministry. Uh, we're getting ready to start up in April, and uh, we're excited about that. If you don't know what that is, that's where uh, some of our church folks go out by twos, typically, uh, and visit people that have moved into this area uh, in the past few months. And uh, we just show up. We, we want to welcome them to the neighborhood, give them a little gift, encourage them to come and visit us at church. And, of course, our goal is always share the gospel. Uh, and so you may have wondered, if you've been going to church here a little while, you may have you may have thought, well, they don't have a door knocking ministry. Well, we do. We just do it a little bit differently uh, than some places do it. We uh, do it in a little more targeted manner. And uh, and I like doing it that way. It's it's good because we give you a list and uh, you're able to, on your own time, we do ask folks to be reasonable. Don't show up 4 a.m., amen. Uh, but uh, we do ask you to be reasonable, but you can sort of do it on your own time. So you go on a Tuesday this week and a Thursday next week, or uh, if you were going out of town needed to miss a week, you could double up before you left or catch up when you got back. And uh, we just ask folks to be faithful, diligent to do their best, uh, to make all the visits that we give them in a month. And uh, it's a great, great, great ministry. Uh, I've found, and uh, this is certainly no criticism of the way any other church does theirs, but I've found it to also be a safer ministry Instead of getting out and just walking up down the street, uh, you're driving to an address, driving to a location. So I know me personally, I feel a lot more comfortable uh, knowing my wife, she's going out visiting, uh, that she would be going and wouldn't never be more than maybe 20 foot from her car and uh, be in a little bit more safer environment. So I think it's a good way uh, to do that ministry. And I encourage you to get involved with it. We need more teams to go out. We're going to hit our uh, hit our marks that we're trying to hit. Uh, we need more teams to go out. And so you might be somebody on your own. You'd say, well, I would go, but, you know, I'm by myself. Well, go ahead and let us know that. Uh, we can pair you with somebody that's familiar with going and comfortable going, and uh, we can make sure you can be involved in that ministry. Every believer ought to be actively involved in the sharing of the gospel. Not a single one of us is not called to that. People say sometimes, well, preacher, I, I, you know, I need to be called. Well, you are called to share the gospel. Uh, if you're saved by the grace of God, then you're called to share the gospel. And uh, you ought to be actively doing that. So I encourage you to get involved. I don't know, uh, the, I, and I think I'm on good footing when I say this, I don't know how we could make it easier uh, than the way that we do it. So I encourage you to come be a part of that ministry. Normally I'd say see Brother Taylor Doss. They're out of town today, but you can see me, uh, and I'll get you uh, hooked up with him, and, and we'll get all the information that you need. Second Chronicles chapter number 12, this passage deals with the life of a king over uh, over Judah by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of King Solomon. And the Bible says in verse number 1 of this passage, Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse number 1, that it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with 1,200 chariots and threescore thousand horsemen. And the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, the Lubims and the Sukums and the Ethiopians. And he took the fenced cities which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. That's, of course, the capital. That's where Rehoboam's throne is. 
Then came Shemaiah the prophet to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves. You know, we all have to humble ourselves from time to time. You're going to have a hard time going through life if you can't learn to humble yourself. And certainly we ought to be able to humble ourselves before the Lord. Amen. So when they realized they were wrong, they humbled themselves. And uh, the Bible says when the Lord saw, they said the Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold, which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again into the guard chamber. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah things went Well, let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be here today. The fact that we're here in this place is a token of your love. Lord, that you and your providence have brought us here. May we banish from our hearts, Lord, any cynicism. Lord, any critical spirit, any pride, Lord, any, any, uh, stiff-heartedness, stiff-neckedness, Lord. May we, may we in our hearts humble ourselves before you. And may we receive with peace and with obedience the engrafted word. Lord, we know that your word is powerful, and it's what we need this morning. So help us, Father, to receive it with humility, and may you be glorified through our reception of it and our obedience to it. I don't know the heart of any person here, Lord, but you know every heart here. And if there's any that are lost this morning, that have never been saved, they've never confessed themselves a sinner and called on you for forgiveness, been born again, I pray that today they'd not leave this place before they've done that very thing. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak expressly to their hearts and show them that need. Lord, speak to all our hearts that which would bring you the most glory. And we'll be sure to thank you and praise you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When I approach this passage of Scripture, there are three things that set the stage for this passage. And they're all contained in verses 1 and 2. Notice with me the first phrase. The Bible says, and it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. If I was just jotting words down that would communicate this, I would say this. The first thing that sets the stage for this passage is the word success. Rehoboam is a man that has met with failure already in his kingdom. In fact, you'll notice there's this almost schizophrenic duality of of words, of titles that are used here because the Bible talks about Israel, but then it also talks about Judah. 
And one of the things, if you're a student of the Bible, that you know is that it was during the reign of Rehoboam that the kingdom of Israel was actually divided into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam, during his days, we could say he lost half the kingdom. Now, not all of this was on his head. Some of this was due to the judgment of God because of the actions of David and the actions of his father Solomon. But certainly Rehoboam, because of, of, of his pig-headedness, because of his stubbornness, because of his blindness, contributed to the losing of this kingdom. He's a man that has tasted failure. He's a man that has met defeat. But when we come to verse number 1, everything's looking up. He's a man that is now being met with success in his kingdom. He may have lost half of it, but the half that he kept, he seems to be ruling well over. And the Bible says that the kingdom was established. What does that mean? Nobody was trying to kick him off the throne. He was able to rest at ease. And the Bible says he strengthened himself. What does that mean? He fortified his political and military position. Uh, Isn't it good, hey, when God blesses us and we enjoy success in life? I'll tell you this, any success you've got, you've got because of the Lord. If you want to get a good perspective, can I help you listen? If you want to get some good theology, take everything the government says about themselves and apply it to God. And you'll get a pretty clear picture of who God is. I remember years ago, uh, Barack Obama, when he was president of the United States, made this statement, got a lot of people's dander up. He was talking about people's success, and he said, you've got a business, you didn't build that. He said, uh, you know, you, you've got success in life. You didn't do that. He said, the government built the roads, and the government did this, and the government did that. And, and what he was saying, and it's just pure rank Marxist collectivism, he was saying that the fruit of your labors are not the fruit of your labors. They belong to the government. And you say, well, preacher, that's wicked. Well, yeah, it is wicked because it's government. But you know, the very same thing could be truthfully said in truth about God. Everything in your life you've got because God has allowed If you've had any success, it's because the Lord has allowed it. So I would say the word success would would characterize this passage. But then the Bible gives us a dark turn to this story. It says when these things happen, that Rehoboam, instead of devoting himself more fully to the Lord, instead of drawing closer to God, the Bible says he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. You know the problem with success? Success is a wonderful thing. I want God's blessing on your life. I want God's favor on your life. Hey, listen, but can I tell you, success has killed a lot of people. Success has wrecked a lot of homes. Success has destroyed a lot of churches. And often when we are successful, often when we are met with favor and blessing, instead of, as it rightly should, drawing us closer to God, we instead allow it to become a stumbling block. And when things get easy, sometimes we get loose. And that's what happened to Rehoboam. You may be meeting some success in life, and I hope that you are. I mean that. I'm not being a smart aleck. I really, I want you, I want you to be successful. I want you to have everything you need. I want God to just bless your socks off. But I'll warn you that when things are going well, very often you'll let down your guard and you'll allow sin in your life. And by the way, this isn't part of the message, but notice this sin did not just affect him. The Bible says all Israel with him. Wasn't just him, it was his kingdom. Hey, wasn't just his kingdom but it was the adjacent kingdom. Can I tell you, your sin has far-reaching effects. You say, well, preacher, it's my life. No, first off, no. If you're saved, it's not. 
But let me go beyond that and say, you say, preacher, it's my life. It's not just your life. It's the life of your kids. It's the life of your spouse. It's the life of your family. It's the life of your friends, your neighbors, your church family, your loved ones. Your sin affects others. So three words, success and then sin. And then verse 2, I would say, is defined by this, the sword. The Bible says, and it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. You know, God loved them enough that He didn't allow them to just rest in their iniquity. And instead, He brought an adversary and He brought a foe to bring them to heal and to bring the judgment of God in their lives. Uh, Let me tell you something. I believe we have a loving God. I wouldn't be saved were it not for the love of God. I believe we don't just have a loving God. I believe God is love. I didn't say love is God, and neither did your Bible. I said God is love. Everything that God does, He does motivated by love. His heart beats for broken humanity. And His heart beats for you today. And He loves you. But understand that one side of love is joy, but the other side is judgment. And He loves us enough that when we sin, He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't patronize us. And and He doesn't pacify us. But instead, He brings the sword into our life to get our attention. And I'll tell you, if you're living in sin, look for the sword. If you're a child of God and you're living in sin, look for the sword. Sooner or later, God will do something to get your attention. To show you, are you listening to me this morning? To show you, this could be your kids at stake. This could be your marriage at stake. This could be your mind at stake today. Your body, your health. If you're living in sin, look for the sword. Because sooner or later, it'll show up. It'll show up. And so there's success and there's sin. And then we see the sword. But when I read this passage of Scripture, there's one verse in particular that arrests my attention. So the children of Israel, they fall under the affliction of Shishak, king of Egypt. And he marches all the way uh, to the gates of Jerusalem. And when they see this and the prophet of God proclaims against them their sin, the Bible says they humbled themselves. Aren't you glad we have a God that pays attention, that listens, that hears? He's a loving God. He bends his ear low to it. And so they humbled themselves. And God says, I'm going to deliver you. But he says, I'm not going to fully deliver you. Instead, the Bible says this in verse 8. Nevertheless, they shall be, Israel shall be his, Shishak's servants. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants. This is why. That they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. (laughs) God proclaims that though he has heard and forgiven Israel for her rebellion, He will still allow her to taste what it is like to serve someone other than Him. I don't know about you, but this reminds me of a similar situation in the life of some believers today. Can I tell you this? We're all going to serve somebody. We're all going to serve something. And when I look at many believers' lives, I, I, I see that some of them are the servants of sin. The Bible says this in John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. There's not a single person that ever commits sin that doesn't get the dynamic of the sin relationship wrong. They all believe that they are the master and sin is the servant. But the Bible declares that exactly the opposite is in fact true. 
You say, well, now, preacher, I got involved in a little something, but I'm not a servant of sin. What strange language that is. What strong language, preacher. I'm not the servant of sin. I just, you know, got some things I need to get. It's funny. When it's somebody else, it's sin. When it's us, it's flaws. You ever notice that? Everybody else got sin. We got flaws. <laughs> Everybody else is out of the will of God. We're just working on us, you know. And, and, and we say, well, preacher, I'm not the servant of sin. Well, the Bible says you are. The Bible says if you commit sin, you're the servant of sin. You say, well, preacher, how is that? Well, Paul explains it to us in Romans 6, 16. He says this, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You say, preacher, I'm not the servant of sin. All right, quit. Quit. Prove it then. Preacher, I, I could lay this sin down at any time. Well, go ahead then. No, the truth of the matter is, when we get involved in sin, we think we're going to run sin. In fact, sin runs us. Some are the servants of sin. I would say this, some, in fact, many are the servants of the flesh. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean? What's the distinction? Well, sin, speaking of some specific sin or some trend of sin in our life, but when I speak of the flesh, I, I speak merely of allowing our passions and our desires to drive and to govern us. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no man can serve two masters. By the way, let me just say this. No man can serve no masters. He don't even bring that up. He don't even talk about it because it's foolish to talk about. No man can serve no masters. And no man can serve two masters, he says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You say, okay, preacher, well, what are my choices? This is what Jesus says. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's amazing, this weird, I want to say this right, if I can, I probably can't. I just have grace in receiving what I'm about to say. But it's amazing, this weird concept of Christianity that is based upon the earthly ministry of Jesus, but strips away all other areas of the Word of God. Because what it does is it paints an incomplete, inappropriate, skewed picture of who Jesus Christ is. Hey, He's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He's not just the God of Calvary. He's the God of creation. Uh, and and people will say, well, preacher, you know, we ought to just talk about Jesus and not judge anyone and, 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 you know, just be kind to everyone and everything. Hey, listen, this is what New Testament, I'm talking about meek shepherd uh, of Galilee said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Say, well, preacher, what's mammon? Mammon is the flesh. It speaks of the world system, but the world system is driven and governed by the flesh. The world does what it does because the flesh drives it to do what it does. And when you got born again, hey, listen, you got saved, but your flesh didn't get saved. Your flesh didn't get redeemed. Your flesh didn't get sanctified. Your flesh is as wicked as ever it always was. The difference is not that you've somehow been created in a sinless condition whereby you cannot do wrong. No, now you have a choice. And now you can choose. You're either going to serve God or the flesh. Some are the servants of the flesh. And then I would say this, some are the servants of the devil. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean? They're involved in the occult? No, not necessarily. You say, preacher, well, what do you mean? They're actively trying to carry out the will of the devil? No, at least they're not aware of it. But I will tell you this, when we live our life in disobedience to God, we are doing the will of the devil. It's interesting when you look at this man, Shishak. And I remember a few years ago, I started hearing, everybody's talking about Shishak. All these women was talking about getting Shishak. I thought, Who's been reading their King James Bible? And then I realized they was talking about some kind of little like barn they'd put out back where they'd go out and knit and read grocery store novels and stuff like that. I thought, man, I'm out of touch. 
Shishak, this man, king of Egypt. I don't know about you, but when I read about him, he, he sort of reminds me of the devil. He's the enemy, the adversary, the opponent of God. He reminds me of the devil in two different ways. One, he reminds me of him in his name. Now, I don't know if you're fluent in ancient Hebrew, but the word Shishak, here's what it means. It means greedy of fine linen. Do you know in the New Testament, the Bible tells us this, that of a group of individuals right now dwelling before the presence of God, the Bible says they are robed in fine linen, white and clean. And then the Bible tells us what the significance of that is, that 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 fine linen, white and clean, that is a picture of the righteousness of the saints of God. In other words, and you've heard the old songwriter sing, taking off the old coat and putting on the new you in your lost condition are robed in the filthy rags of your self-righteousness. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you put off that old coat. You say, I'm not righteous, I'm not clean, I'm not holy, I'm not holy. And you lay that down and the Bible teaches us this, that then the perfect sinless righteousness of God is robed upon you. You know the devil hates that. He hates it. The only thing he hates more than the way God sees him is the way that God sees you and me that are saved by His grace. And He detests and loathes that we are whole before God. And you know what He wants to do more than anything? He can't send a saved person to hell. He can't unsave them. He can't unwash the blood of Calvary. But here's what He can do. He can foul their life. He can spoil their life. He can wreck their testimony. He can wreck their walk with God. He wants the fine linen of your life. He'll do everything He can to besmirch it. He reminds me not only in his name, but in his nationality. Now, let me tell you, any Egyptians in the room? I didn't notice any, I didn't notice any idols with dog heads or, you know, anything. I've seen some, well, mm. Egypt is not necessarily just as a geographical location. There's nothing wrong with it. We've got missionaries right now in Egypt. But Egypt in the Bible, it's always a picture of sin and the world. In fact, it is sort of viewed as the capital of this world system of defiance against God. And do you know, in fact, it's interesting, the king of Egypt in the eyes and mind of ancient Egyptians, he wasn't just a ruler, he wasn't just a sovereign. They actually thought that he was the incarnation of Ra, their sun god. They believed that the king of Egypt was a god, in other words. And so here's this man, Shishak, he is king of Egypt. So he is God of the capital of this world. And did you know in the New Testament, the Bible tells us of Satan himself that he is the God of this world. So in other words, let's stop and think about this for a moment. Here's the children of Israel. Things are going well. God's blessing them. They let their guard down. They allow sin in their life. They forsake the Lord. They defy God. God brings in the foe, the adversary, and lays them prey and vulnerable to him, and he enslaves them. And the Bible says that God delivers them to a degree. But then God says this, lest they forget what it's like to serve them versus serving me. Here's what he says, I'm going to let them taste their service so that they'll appreciate my service. I'm going to preach to you on this thought for just a few moments this morning. My service or their service. Let me tell you something, child of God. You're going to serve somebody. You think you're living your life for you under your dictates and under your desires and under your designs. But the truth is you're going to serve someone with your life. You say, well, preacher, I'll serve myself. You won't serve yourself. 
You thinking you're going to serve yourself is exactly what the devil needs you to think so that you'll serve him. Because if you serve self, you'll serve him. And so I just want us to look at this passage for a moment. And I want us to do what God tells us to do here. I want us to compare the devil, sin, and the flesh. I want us to compare their service to God's service. And I want you to make the choice today of who you're going to serve. Notice with me, number one this morning, the service of the dictator king. Now, we're not told a lot about this man, Shishak, and secular history has uh, spare a little more to add to him. But just in this passage alone, there are three things that jump out to me. Notice verse number three. The Bible says when he came, he didn't come by himself. When he came, he didn't come with a small retinue. When he came, he didn't come with a household guard. When he showed up, he showed up, the Bible says, with 1,200 chariots. Say, preacher, is that a lot? It's more than you or I have. (laughs) And three score thousand horsemen, 60,000 horsemen. And the Bible says the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt. I want you to notice number one this morning, his power. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, this was an irresistible king. They couldn't hope to withstand him. They couldn't hope to rebuff him. They might have thought that they would somehow broker a deal. But the truth is, man, you show up with uh, this many chariots. You show up this many horsemen. You show up with this many people. You didn't show up to talk. You showed up to take over. You know, the funny thing about it, when we get involved in sin, when we yield to the flesh, when we allow the devil's space in our life, We all uh, believe and deceive ourselves into thinking somehow we're going to have the run of the thing. Can I tell you this? Listen, child of God, you don't have within you the strength needed to overcome him. You say, preacher, but the Bible says greater is he that is in you. Yeah, not greater is you. Greater, Greater is he that is in you. And the truth is, you dabble in sin, you think you'll keep it under control. You think you'll catch that tiger by the tail. You think it won't be you. You think it won't happen to you. You think somehow that you'll be immune, somehow that that, that you'll be guarded. But the truth is, man, don't allow pride and hubris and arrogance and ignorance to infect your life. Better people than you and better people than me, their lives have been wrecked because they got involved in sin. I see his power. But then look at verse number 4. The Bible says this, He took the fenced cities which pertain to Judah. The Bible says he came to Jerusalem. I want you to notice his plan. Now, you know, I'm not a skilled military mind. I'm not a skilled any kind of mind, amen. But uh, I will say this. Maybe they had hoped for a while that he'd be contented to just take a little territory. If you were to envision a map, you understand Judah's up here and and Egypt is way down here. And so what he's doing is he's expanding his borders. And and probably the reason that they hesitated and waited is they probably thought, well, he's just wanting to get a little bit more land. He's just wanting to expand Egypt's borders. He's just wanting to get a few strategic areas that he can get. And so they literally sat back and watched as the enemy marched to the very steps of their city. Probably the whole time thinking, he'll only take a little bit more. Can I tell you this? Can I tell you what the devil's plan is? Notice what our Bible says here a little bit later on. When he finally showed up, what did he do? Verse number 9, the Bible says this, he took all. He don't just want part of your life. He wants all of your life. You think he'll be satisfied with just a corner of it. 
But the truth is, he'll march straight up to the gates of your heart and demand your fealty. I, this is part of the reason, man, we can't play around with sin. You've heard the old man of God say, sin will always take you farther than you want to go uh, and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And everybody that lets sin in their life, they always think they're going to compartmentalize it. They're going to put it in a little box and store it somewhere. But I'm sorry, it doesn't stay in that place. It doesn't, it doesn't obey. It doesn't stay confined. It doesn't, it doesn't keep itself to those quarters. It'll do everything it can to consume and take over every part of your life. I'm not making this up. I'm not telling tales out of school. Go down sometime. Uh, listen, go, go up to some of them floors, UT Hospital. Uh, talk to people who have drank their livers uh, into oblivion. Talk to people who have allowed drugs to ravage their body. Talk to people dying of sexual sins that they got involved in. And ask any of them if they ever thought they would be there. None of them did. None of them planned. Listen, there's never been a drunkard set out to be a drunkard. Never an addict set out to be an addict. Never a person body ravaged by iniquity that set out to do that. They all thought they would dabble. And they all wound up in chains. You know why? His plan ain't to take a little bit. His plan's to take all. And you think he won't do it, but I promise you he will. Please heed my words and don't be that example one day. I, I see, listen, I see his power. I see his plan. But then look with me down at verse number nine. We get a little bit more detail about exactly what he did. Look at verses nine and ten. The Bible says this. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. In fact, he took all. He carried away also the shields of gold, which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. I see not only his power and his plan, but notice with me his pillaging. Say, preacher, what does he want to take? Well, he wants to take everything. But when he does, what does that look like? Notice two things here. Number one, he spoiled them. He showed up and loaded his carts up and took everything that he could out of their life. Uh, we all think that, that, that sin adds to our life. We all like to believe that the flesh adds to our life. We all like to somehow imagine the devil will add to our life. We've got funny papers theology. We've looked at Hollywood of all these people striking and brokering deals with uh, some uh, scaly-tailed, uh, pitchfork-toting devil. And, and somehow we've allowed ourselves to think that, that he will give us something in return for what he takes. But the truth is, he won't give you anything that you want. He'll give you only pain and heartache. He doesn't give, He takes. You know why He doesn't give? Because He can't create. You know why God can give? Because God can create. But the devil, He can't. He, he is a thief. And He cometh only to rob and to steal and to kill and to destroy. I noticed three things that He spoiled. Notice the first thing He took. The Bible says this in verse 9. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. Now, the Bible uses that term treasures, and certainly those objects were treasures. But you understand that the temple wasn't a bank. I mean, these weren't just random gold-encrusted and diamond-encrusted goblets and, and plates and bowls. When the Bible talks about the treasures of the house of the Lord, it's talking about the utensils that were necessary for the carrying out of the service of the temple. Can I say this? You say, preacher, what will the devil take from me? He'll, he'll take your fellowship from you. It's amazing. The first thing he goes after is church. 
Oh, I'm going to say it again. You ready? The first thing he'll go after is your church relationship. Why? Because it's all easy after that. It's all easy. If he can get you out of church, man, it's all easy after that. Uh, you know, the Bible describes him as a roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. You ever watch any of these, any of these, uh, uh, television shows about the animals? You watch these television shows, these discovery, this is some discovery theology. You ready? Discovery channel preaching. Uh, you watch some of these shows and, and, and one of the things you'll always notice when those lions, when they hunt, you know what they always do? They always try to cut one from the herd. They find the slowest, the weakest, the dumbest, and they try to cut it from the herd. You know the devil does the same thing. He'll try to cut you from the herd. Why? Because you're weaker on your own. He can't run the whole herd down. In fact, that herd was of a mind. It could turn around and trample that line into bits and pieces. But if he can get you alone, he can handle you alone. So here's what Shishak does. He, he shows up and he spoiled their fellowship. He made it to where they couldn't worship God. Made it to where they couldn't fellowship with God. And the devil and sin and the flesh, they'll always try to spoil your fellowship. And then the Bible says this, he took the treasures of the king's house. He took all. Now, the treasures of the king's house is an interesting phrase because of the snapshot in history in which this is. You understand that Rehoboam, he's the son of Solomon. And Solomon was the wealthiest king to ever sit on the throne of Israel. The Bible, in fact, speaks with grand, lofty language about the vast wealth that Solomon had accrued. And by the way, that's probably a lot of the reason that Shishak came knocking on their door in the first place. With Solomon dead, he said, they're ripe for the plucking. And I know that Solomon, he had tons of money. But you know, it's interesting when you look at Solomon's life. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, but he was one of those guys, man, it looked like everything just fell in his lap. When you study it, he's not a perfect man. He he made plenty of mistakes. But it's like all through his life, all these wonderful, amazing things just seem to fall into his lap. And do you know why that is? The Bible tells us the story early in Solomon's reign when God appears to Solomon. And basically, here's what God does. He writes Solomon a blank check. He says, Solomon, anything you ask. He says, I want to bless you. I want to bless my people. Anything that you ask, I'll give you. And Solomon, this is what he asks for. He prays. And he says, Lord, I'm like a child. I don't know how to go in or to come out before your people. And God, what I need more than anything is I need wisdom. That just blessed God's heart. And God looks at him and he says, Solomon, lesser men would have asked for wealth. Lesser men would have asked for power. Lesser men would have asked for influence. But you've asked for wisdom. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you wisdom. But I'm also going to give you all those other things that lesser men would have asked for. And so Solomon's wealth. It's just a part of it, but it is almost a symbol of the favor of God in Solomon's life. The blessings of God. I don't think it's by accident that when Shishak shows up, say that five times fast. Whenever he arrives, he wants to go after the thing that is the token of the favor and blessing of God in their life. Hey, listen, you want a life that's blessed? Obey God. 
You want a life that's nothing but frustration and heartache and sorrow. Oh, my soul, I wish I could get you to hear me this morning. You want a life that, that feels like it's thrice charmed, a life that feels as though you're walking on blessings day by day. You ain't got to name it and claim it. You've got to bow before Him and obey Him. But if you'll do it, if you'll walk with God, you'll enjoy the blessing and favor of God. Hey, listen, my life, I'm more blessed than any man has a right to be. I, my life is an embarrassment of God's love. But day by day, I want to give this testimony what my life is. It is not because of me, but it is only, are you listening? It is only and solely because of the blessing and favor of God. But I will tell you this, God will not endorse a sinful life by blessing it. And so much like Balaam of old learned in deceiving the children of Israel, he couldn't curse that which God had blessed. But if he could lead them into sin, then God would curse them because of their sin. And Shishak, if he can, the sin, the flesh, the devil, if he can, he'll rob the favor of God in your life by getting you to live in disobedience. And then the Bible says this, he carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. This is interesting. These shields of gold are quite storied in the Word of God. Solomon had them made during his reign. There were thousands of them, and they adorned the uh, the palace of uh, of uh, Solomon there in in Jerusalem. And but I'm more interested in what a shield of gold not necessarily is, but might represent. Do you know the Bible says much about shields in the Word of God, but there's a New Testament verse that drew my attention. It's Ephesians chapter six, verse sixteen. Uh, Paul's dealing with the armor of, of faith, the armor of the child of God. And he says this, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So in the New Testament, the Holy Ghost says that shields, at least part of the time, are a picture of a believer's faith. You say, well, preacher, these are shields, but they're not just shields, they're shields of gold. And I'm reminded then of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.7 when he speaks of the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold. Hey, preacher, what do these shields of gold represent? Well, they represent the sincere, genuine faith of the child of God. And here's what, here's what sin will rob you of. It'll rob you of your fellowship with God and your favor from God, but it'll rob you of your faith in God. It's amazing. You get in sin, you'll doubt things you never thought you would have doubted. You get in sin, you'll start wondering, you'll start thinking things about God, and you'll think, where'd that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. Sin, sin doesn't trust God. Are you listening? Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Sin is incompatible with faith in God. The flesh does not trust God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be the devil. He doesn't trust God. Hey, they have a form of faith. They believe and tremble, but they don't believe it with obedient faith. And you say, preacher, what happens? I let sin in my life. It won't be long. You'll be doubting things you never thought you would have doubted. So when I read this story, I see that he spoiled them. But then I think about why he took these golden shields and what they did in place. Verse number 10, the Bible says this, Because these uh, golden shields were gone, instead of these, King Rehoboam, the Bible says, made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. He goes on to describe how that they would only break those things out whenever the king was going to the house of the Lord. And they really weren't there because they wanted them there. They were there because they didn't want to see a big empty space where the shields of gold should have been. And so in many ways, this was a humiliation of the people of Israel. 
I would say this, he wanted to spoil them, but number two, he wanted to shame them. You want to live a life of shame? Get involved in sin. You'll have plenty to be ashamed of. And I think about these men that were standing there, these guards, day by day, their job was to stand at their post and stare at that wall and to look at those brazen shields. And I think to myself, you know, every time they saw them, they would be constantly reminded of what once was and was no longer there. You know, sin will make you live a life of regret. I'm going to say it again. Sin will make you live a life of regret. Some of you, and I'm not asking you to be vocal unless God just wants you to be vocal and give an amen, but some of you, you look back at things and you wish you could unwind the clock. Man, you wish you'd go back. You remembered what it used to be. You remember how it once was. You remember what you once did. And you look back with a broken heart because you allowed sin and disobedience to come in and wreck and ruin a beautiful thing that God was doing. They'd be constantly reminded of what once was, but they'd also be constantly reminded of what could have been. Hey, brass shields are pretty good unless you've seen the gold ones. I'd be thankful. Anybody wants to buy me a brass shield, I'm for it. All right? I'll put it on my Amazon wish list, okay? But when you've seen the gold shields, all you do is look at the brass ones and think, man, they could have been so much better. They could have been so much better. It's funny, you get in some of these old houses and look at old world craftsmanship back when people knew how to do things. And we live in a day today where everything's just punched out and prefabbed and pushed out. And you look at the pride with which people used to take their work and, and, and everything done by hand and everything done with skill and artisanship. And, and nowadays, I heard a fellow say the other day, the word craft is relegated to people that make boxes with sticks and glue. <laughs> and used to, the idea of a craftsman was a meaningful word. And, you know, we walk around and you see a brand new house and it's clean and it's new. And if you've never seen any of that old world craftsmanship, it looks nice. But if you've seen some of that old word craftsmanship, you look at it and you think what it could have been. I'm not trying to defeat you or discourage you or dishearten you today, but I am trying to warn you, don't spend the rest of your life weeping, heartbroken, regretting what God could have done if you just stayed close and clean. Hey, listen, the sin, the flesh, the devil, it'll shame you if you allow it. So we've seen the service of this dictator king. But remember, God's intention is not just to beat them up. God's design is not just to discourage them. God wants them to compare and contrast between their service and his service. I'll tell you this, the devil's a rough master. Sin is a cruel master. The flesh is a mean master. And if you let your life be driven by those things, you'll live in bondage. But you know, there is another choice. That's what happened when you got born again. You got a choice. See, the world wants you to think when you got saved, you lost all your choices. But when you got saved, you actually got your first choice. You could choose. And can I tell you this? We see the service of the dictator king, but there's a better king. I want you to notice the service of the divine king. I just have a couple thoughts. Notice them with me. Verse 5. The Bible says this. This when Israel's still in her disobedience says, Then came Shemaiah the prophet to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. 
Can I tell you how good our God is? Can I, can I just tell you how precious our God? Can I tell you why you'd rather serve Him than serve self, sin, the flesh, the devil? I say number one because of His proclamation here. God loves them enough to tell them when they're wrong. See, the devil won't tell you until you're caught. But the Lord will tell you when you're wrong. He loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong. Uh, listen, anybody in this room, uh, anybody ever, anybody got kids? Anybody ever been a kid? Then you know, anybody still feel like a kid? God bless you, that's wonderful. One of the instinctive fundamental things we understand about the relationship between a child and a parent is that a child does not, a parent does not tell a child when they're wrong and tell them no because they hate them because they detest them, resent them, or despise them, but they do it because they love them and care about them. I'll tell you, it would be a lot easier to never tell my kids no. Easier on me, at least. (laughs) It'd be hell on the world. (laughs) But it might be easier on me, but I will tell you this, the whole reason we tell them those things is because, in fact, we do love them. I'll tell you why you ought to serve God. He loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong. He loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong. And I love how clear he is. He don't, he's not asking him to shake a magic eight ball. He's not asking him to, to crack, the, crack the Bible code and carry the uh, integer and, and, and flip and inverse the dividend. He just tells him. He says, ye have forsaken me and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Can I tell you something? There are vast mysteries in the Bible, but God's pretty plain spoken about sin. He loves us enough to tell us. I'd say because of His proclamation. But then verse 6, the Bible says this, whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. Let me pause there and say, you say, preacher, I'm in a mess. What do I do? Do what they did. Humble yourself and say, the Lord is righteous. Now, what were they saying when they said the Lord is righteous? They were saying they weren't. Righteous, rightness. Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. Lord, you're true. I'm false. Lord, you're holy. I'm sinful. They did the right thing. They humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. And I I like this. And when the Lord saw, I'm glad he's looking. He hadn't turned his gaze away from his people. They had forsaken him, but he had not forsaken them. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them but I will grant them some deliverance. Can I tell you why you ought to serve this king right here? Because of his pity. See, the devil's just looking for any opportunity to ensnare you. God's looking to set you free. The devil's looking to put you in chains. God's looking to put a crown on you. (laughs) The devil's looking to give you grief. God's looking for you to dwell in his glory. The devil wants to give you problems. Hey, but he gives you pity. I'll tell you this, you ought to serve him because he's a loving Pitying God. But preacher, I'll mess up. Oh, you'd a lot rather mess up with him than mess up with the devil. Devil, cut your throat. You mess up on him. Hey, we have a loving, patient God. I'd say you ought to serve him because of his pity. But then verse 8 even, our, our text, the Bible says this, Nevertheless, they shall be his servants. Why? Well, because I'm mad at them. No. Why? Because they deserve it. No, they did. But that's not why. Why? That they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. You ought to serve Him because of His perfecting. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, everything He does, He does for your good and for your benefit. If I was God, and we better all thank God that I'm not God, 
If I was God, man, I'd have snuffed them out. I'm done with you. I'd have swatted them down like a house fly. But God, even in their disobedience, even in their rebellion, He's not driven by resentment or vengeance or spite. Even in the midst of their disobedience, He's still looking and saying, what can I do to grow them? What can I do to cleanse them? What can I do to perfect them? What can I do to develop them? And I'll just tell you this, you ought to serve the Lord God of heaven because He'll grow you and develop you. And everything He does, He's not doing it out of spite or hatred or malice. You don't ever have to get up and wonder, is God doing what He's doing because He's mad at me. You don't ever have to get up and wonder, is God doing what He's doing because He hates me? You can always know that He's doing it for your good and for His glory. I'd say because of His perfecting. And then verse 12, the Bible says this of Rehoboam, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. I'd say you ought to serve Him because of His pardon. Because if you've sinned and you've messed up, you don't have to flee from Him. You can run to Him. He'll forgive you. The devil, you understand the devil can't forgive you. Are you listening? If you mess up, he can't forgive you. A number of reasons. One, he has no relationship with God whereupon to forgive you. But then even beyond that, there's no payment or sacrifice. There's no substitute. There's no atonement whereby he can forgive you. Only God can forgive you because only God has paid the price. Sin is unforgiving. I remember... I'll tell you this. I've I've seen little kids ain't done a thing wrong. Ain't done a thing wrong. But I've seen their lives snuffed out. I've seen their bodies distorted and destroyed. I've seen their minds twisted and corrupted because of the sin of others. Sin's cruel. I've I've seen, listen, I've seen spouses weep themselves with broken hearts because of the sin of their spouse. And they didn't do anything wrong. They've been everything they should have been. But sin don't care. Sin's cruel. Fact of the matter is, hey, you want a God that forgives? You want a master that forgives? You want one that pardons? You're going to have to serve him. Because he's the only one that can pardon. But here's the good news for you. You say, preacher, I've messed up. Well, that's okay. Because he pardons. A lot of people get messed up. We live in a throwaway society. Something breaks, just throw it away. And we've taken that same attitude about our relationship with the Lord. Well, I messed up, just throw it away. No, you ain't got to throw it away. His mercies are new every morning. He ain't throwing you away. Don't throw him away. Preacher, but the clay's messed up. But he'll remake it again. He'll remake it again. He don't throw it away. He's got the means. He's got the grace. He's got the power. That he can pardon. You ought to serve him because of his pardon. But then look at verse 12 at the end of it. This is interesting. You ever read something in your Bible and thought, well, that's strange. Well, this sounds a little strange to me. When he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. Isn't that funny how that sounds? Just kind of like it's after the fact. Also in Judah, things went well. Well, you know why that is. The reason things went well in Judah is God had an expected end plan for Judah. And God didn't give up just because of the sin of Rehoboam. God did not give up on his greater plan for Judah as a kingdom. You know, later on, the line of the tribe of Judah would be born of Judah. Later on, they would take that little baby boy down to Bethlehem Ephrata in the land of Judah. 
much of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, particularly the latter portion of it, would be walking the streets of Jerusalem and would be ministering there in the southern portion of the kingdom. See, here's the great thing. I would say, you preach, preach why, why should I serve him? Serve him because of his patience. God don't, God don't get nervous and just jump just because things get wonky. He's got an expected end planned. He's got a long plan set in. And I would tell you this, hey, listen, the devil will throw you away quick as he can. The moment he's done with you, sin will set back and cackle at you whenever it's taken its final blow. The flesh will never be satisfied and will never give you any quarter, never give you any peace. But this master, he is a patient, pitying, pardoning, perfecting, loving, gracious master. And I'll just tell you this, you're going to have to choose today. Preacher, do I have to choose today? Well, you've got to choose every day. And today's no different. And you're going to have to choose today. Who are you going to serve? What are you going to serve? Preacher, I won't serve nobody. I'll serve myself. You're a fool. And I don't say it lightly. I know what the Bible says about using it lightly. I say that on good scriptural standing and authority. You think you'll serve yourself today. You're a fool. You won't serve yourself. You're either going to serve, hey, listen, you're either going to serve sin or the flesh or the devil or you're going to serve him. I encourage you, make the active, deliberate choice to serve him today. He's a master worth serving. You won't regret it. I, I'm not just trying to browbeat you. You won't take my advice. You won't regret it. Some of y'all, if I told you what car to buy, you'd buy it. If I told you where to eat, you'd eat there. If I told you what clothes to get, you'd take my recommend. Take my advice today. You won't regret it. He's a precious master. Give your life to him and serve him today. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. Now's the time to deal with the Lord. You don't have to wait even a moment. In fact, I'd, I'd advise you not to. You'll lose your nerve. Instead, go ahead and slip out of your seat. Meet the Lord down here in the altar. Musicians going to play in a moment, but you can get busy right now with the Lord. You know, there may be some area of your life where you've not served Him. You've allowed sin to wrest away the authority of God to govern you and to guide you. Maybe allowed the flesh to have dominion over you. Done the will of Satan through disobedience to God. It's not too late. He's not give up on you. He's not thrown you away. He's a pardoning, patient God. Won't you come to Him today? Let Him have His will and way in your life. Say, preacher, I don't know that I won't serve anybody. You'll serve somebody. Won't you serve a God worth serving? These are praying. God touched your heart. Would you meet Him down here? Let Him have His will and His way.